You're listening to the best of the Martha Zoller Show. You can hear the show live Monday through Friday from 9 to 11 on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN and streaming at accesswdun.com. You can find all things Martha Zoller at marthazoller.com. Uh, welcome to the program. How are you? Well, good morning, Martha. It's good to be with you this morning. So tell us um, what you are seeing as far as any kind of briefings or any, I know you can't talk about what they told you, but what is going on related to the Chinese spy balloon that happened over the weekend? Well, I can certainly tell you that it entered U.S. airspace over up in Alaska. All right. And this was uh, in the end of January, January 28th. Uh, and then it left U.S. airspace, and it went out over the ocean, over the Aleutians, and then came back in through Canada, and then ended up going um, <clears throat> into uh, northern Idaho, and then down, literally hovering over some of our bases, and then um, in very important strategic bases, and then coming down across the United States, finally getting out to the eastern seaboard where it was shot down. And I will tell you that um, that this balloon that people call is actually an airship okay it is controllable uh and it is completely intentional i believe Uh, this is an opportunity for the chinese to spy uh as has been said um this just wasn't a balloon uh, a spy balloon this was a trial balloon to see how the united states would respond to it and we responded Abysmally, it was an abysmal failure by the Biden administration. This balloon, this airship should have been shot down over the Pacific Ocean and not over the Atlantic. Uh, And it should never have been allowed to cross the United States and gather intelligence. Uh, That's completely unacceptable. Uh, And I'll tell you that, um, that there are some people in the Department of Defense and in the White House that need to be called to account for this uh, inexcusable saga. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't make sense to me that you wouldn't have taken it out either in Alaska or even over Montana instead of in the busiest airspace maybe in the world. I mean, the eastern seaboard, I know Saturday's not as not as busy, but it's still, you know, east. that's where most of the people in the United States live is on the eastern seaboard. And so it's it doesn't make sense. So I appreciate that for that update. Um, also, you heard coming in, I'm sure, uh, Speaker McCarthy talking about the debt ceiling. What is the status? I mean, I have my own idea about what I think is going to happen, but what? where do you think it is right now? Well, first, there has to be negotiation between Republicans and Democrats. I mean, as uh, Speaker McCarthy said, that uh, the way we solve this is that we do it in a bipartisan manner, and I believe that, too. Now, the president has to come to the table and negotiate with us. We will not simply provide a, not a clean debt ceiling, but a blind, a blind debt ceiling increase. Because what that truly says is, uh, is the path forward is simply the path that was behind us, and that is unchecked spending. And that cannot be allowed to happen. We are seeing our national debt skyrocket, the highest national debt in, in two years. We have grown the most we have ever grown. This is completely unacceptable. Um, you know, the American people want financial responsibility uh, from our federal government. They are not getting it. They have not gotten it, but they will get it under a Republican majority. So the president has to come to the table. And um, as the speaker said, uh, 
there will be no cuts to Social Security or to Medicare benefits. But uh, there will certainly be cuts to non-defense discretionary spending. In fact, that's going to have to be cut a lot. And I'm looking forward to participating in that, being on the Appropriations Committee. In fact, I was just having a meeting here before this uh, and before I got on with you, Martha, with the folks uh, on Labor, HHS, and Education, the Subcommittee on Appropriations, and that will continue after this uh, after this interview. So, well, and um, I, think, um, I, I mean, and, sure. and it is. I know that that's the boogeyman that they throw out there is cutting Social Security and Medicare, but but the, gonna, the idea we're not going to cut Social Security and Medicare, but there should be oversight of Social Security and Medicare to be sure that. If, if we're doing things in a more inefficient way that's costing more money for the program, that we can make those changes. And that's not cutting the program. That's exactly right. You said it very well. We are definitely going to make sure that it is fiscally and financially responsible. That means we have to attack the fraud that we know has happened in Social Security and in Medicare uh, areas. I mean, that's just being responsible. But when it comes to the actual benefits to those who have paid in that expect to get a return from it, that's not going to get cut. We are going to preserve that, but we are certainly going to make it more efficient uh, wherever we can. And I believe that that's only being, you know, frugal and fiscally responsible as a government. Now, Senator Rand Paul and others have talked about um, going back to, you know, the 2019 budget, B.C., before COVID and um, take a look at that budget because it actually would fit in as far as receipts are concerned today, as far as what we're getting. And, you know, and I don't think you can just take the 2019 budget. I'm sure that in order in a negotiation, right, you're going to have people that are going to want certain things, but that does seem like a reasonable idea to say, let's go back to before all the COVID spending that was thrown into the budget, and let's look at that budget and then see where we are. You're right. That is correct. That is reasonable. In fact, we might actually be going back to 2018 uh, because we're not going to cut defense. Defense is now. We're also going to be responsible when it comes to defense. You know, there's always areas we can improve on, and we're going to do that too. But defense is a a fundamental responsibility of the federal government, uh, the national defense. But then the rest of the programs, the non-defense discretionary, uh, which has simply ballooned over time, over $400 billion in the last few years, that needs to be cut, and that will get cut, because we have to get back to a responsible federal government. Absolutely. Um, anything else you want people to know? Because I know you're, you've got a heart out because you've got another meeting, but and there's a lot going on. Anything else you want people to know before we let you go? Well, I will be going to the State of the Union tonight, and I'll be listening to what the president has to say. And I will certainly be providing my, um, uh, my input and, and my comment on what he has to say. Uh, I think he's going to try and rewrite history. But um, but we're going to make sure that uh, that that uh, uh, does not happen. Um, so I'm looking forward to, to hearing the president. Are and you I have, inviting? Uh, are you inviting anyone? I am. I have. I was going to say that Sheriff Randy Shirley oh, great. Uh, from Stevens County is my guest. So I'm looking forward to spending a little time with him this evening and um, uh, and to, to hear the president's address. 
That sounds great. Well, Andrew Clyde, Congressman Andrew Clyde, thank you so much. And, um, you know, good luck. I'll be watching with you. So maybe we'll share a few tweets. It'll be good. (laughs) (laughs) That'll work, Martha. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. It's where North Georgia comes to talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Welcome to the Martha Zoller Show. It's always great to talk to Senator John Ossoff, and we have him with us here this morning. Good morning, sir. Martha, good morning. Thank you so much for having me, and good morning to everybody out there on the roads, on the way to work, taking the kids to school. It's my pleasure to serve you. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit before we get into the State of the Union. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Georgia pecan growers and what you've been able to accomplish related to that. Martha, I like to solve problems for Georgia. And I was down in Tifton last summer, sitting down with some pecan farmers down there. They told me that their top concern was that the government of India had imposed a 100% tariff on American pecan exports. Now, as you know, Georgia produces a third of all U.S. pecans. And the Indian market is more than 1 billion consumers. We want to sell our pecans to India. But this 100% tariff, this 100% import tax meant Georgia pecan farmers couldn't sell into the Indian market. So I launched an effort to change that. I met seven times over the last eight months with India's ambassador to the U.S. I led a trade delegation to India. I pressed the administration to make this the top issue in U.S.-India trade relations. And in the last 10 days, as a result of those efforts, India has announced a 70% cut to their tariff, opening this market, again, of more than 1 billion consumers to Georgia pecan growers. That is very exciting. Um, and, And this came out of a meeting that you had last summer traveling around, I'm assuming, during one of the breaks, right? Yeah, I was down in Tifton, and I sat down with those pecan growers, and I really have to take my hat off to them. This would not have happened without them. They advocated tirelessly for this. They worked tirelessly for this, uh, and together we were able to make a real improvement that is going to open a broader market, a huge market, to Georgia agriculture. Um, When I worked in the Senate, one of the big issues had to do with cotton and the same kind of situation related to tariffs and how we could do that. Is that still going on, that the problems with how we are able to export our cotton? There are trade issues that impact every part of Georgia's agriculture economy. And in fact, I brought the U.S. trade representative down to Georgia about a month ago to sit down with representatives from all of the major segments in Georgia agriculture so that we could chart out the best course to improving the trade environment for Georgia farmers. We want to sell Georgia products to the world. That brings more prosperity, more opportunity, and more jobs to our state. I am very focused on delivering for Georgia farmers, and this big win on pecans uh, is going to bring more prosperity to the state of Georgia. Absolutely. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about what's going on right now up in D.C. Of course, there's we had the State of the Union earlier this week, and would love to know your thoughts on that. Look, I thought the parts of that speech that were the most important for Georgians to pay attention to uh, were the parts focused on infrastructure and manufacturing. The bipartisan infrastructure law that we passed 
nearly 70 senators, Republicans and Democrats, working together to upgrade American infrastructure is delivering real benefits to the state of Georgia. And as you know, Martha, my approach in the Senate is to avoid all of the partisan hoopla and the bickering and to work across the aisle to get things done. Last week, I was in Byron, Georgia, where through the bipartisan infrastructure law, I'm delivering uh, a replacement of a problematic water main on Walker Road that's interrupting clean water service to residents there. The same day I was in Thompson, Georgia, where through the bipartisan infrastructure law, uh, we're addressing a long-term flooding issue at First Avenue and Main Street. So that bipartisan infrastructure law that's expanding broadband Internet access to rural areas, that's upgrading water infrastructure, that's making road and bridge safety improvements, those are quality of life and economic competitiveness issues. And the fact that we passed that legislation with Republican and Democratic support proves that we can put the national interest ahead of the interests of political parties. So I thought that the focus on infrastructure was very significant for Georgia, but also the focus on manufacturing. You know that I've been very focused on bringing manufacturing jobs and investment to the state, especially in the advanced energy sector, to strengthen our energy security and our energy independence. Uh, Much of that also supported by the infrastructure law. Uh, So the infrastructure and manufacturing aspects, I thought, were the most significant for Georgia. My concern about the the State of the Union in general, and I love the fact you focus on the positive and what's best for Georgia, is that it doesn't matter whether it's a Democratic president or Republican president, is that it seems to be much more like a RNC or DNC convention speech rather than actually talking about what's important to Americans. And that concerns me. And maybe it's just my age that I'm tired of hearing things that don't actually come to fruition. Uh, but I would love to know what your thoughts are about whether it's too political and not enough about what's important. Well, look, you know, I think it has become uh, more contentious and more raucous in the House chamber during those speeches, uh, presidents of both parties. Um, you know, there's a bit more of kind of heckling and and um, and uh, folks who are trying to get on TV by raising a ruckus. Uh, and I think that's unfortunate. Um, but that's exactly the kind of politics that I, I try not to indulge in. You know, as you know, you're rarely going to find me popping up on cable news just to court controversy or saying something ridiculous on social media. Uh, and so I try to tune out that noise, avoid all that hoopla and focus on delivering results for the state. And that's why I think that for Georgians, the infrastructure and manufacturing policies that were discussed in the speech are the most relevant to our prosperity, our economic growth, our competitiveness, and our future. So, um, of course, we've got the debt ceiling uh, debate that we have to deal with, as well as the budget. And, of course, uh, Speaker McCarthy and the president met last week, and it was, I think, was a, sounded like it was a positive meeting. And what I said on the air was, I hope that the next meeting includes uh, Leader Schumer uh, and uh, other parties from both, both houses so that they can get things done. Um, we certainly have a big issue related to debt, and in the historically... Um, you know, some spending stuff has been done along with that. Now, one of your colleagues, Rand Paul, has a plan out there that says, let's go back to the 2019 budget and then let's build from there. Let, that would take all the COVID spending out, that sort of thing. I don't know if that's the solution, but I think that's a reasonable place to start. 
are those kinds of discussions happening right now where it's it's a realistic picture of let's look at the debt, but also let's look at spending? Look, I was glad as you were to see the speaker and the president to sit down uh, and rather than negotiating through the press uh, to, to have these conversations. I mean, discussions across the aisle are crucial. We've got to put America's interest above the interest of political parties. And unfortunately, that spirit, and I think you and I agree on this, Martha, is too absent from American government right now. So the conversations that can lead uh, to productive outcomes are necessary. And I'm glad those conversations are happening. I'm always willing to sit down with my Republican colleagues uh, to uh, chart a course forward together. Uh, We can disagree on principle. We should disagree on principle in a civil way and also find opportunities to come together and arrive at a consensus. The bottom line is that we cannot default on America's bills. The consequences for interest rates, the consequences for inflation, the consequences for families paying mortgages for folks who need car loans, folks who have investments in the market would be catastrophic. So we've got to find a way forward here. As always, we need to do it in a cool-headed and responsible and prudent way. Uh, We've got to find a way to work together in the American interest. Absolutely. Senator John Ossoff, anything else you want to talk about before we let you go? I know you're on a tight schedule today. Martha, great to speak with you. I want to express my gratitude to all of the military service members and families, first responders, teachers, healthcare workers out there. Uh, whenever I can be of service, it's ossoff.senate.gov. Let me know how I can help. My team and I are standing by. Absolutely. Senator Ossoff, thanks so much and have a great uh, rest of the week. Same to you. God bless. Take care. Putting the talk in news talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Bill Crane is here with me today for Crane's Corner, and it is that time again where people are down at the Capitol. But we're still talking, Bill, about this medical marijuana issue. And uh, it's, it's almost as if the issue's getting ahead of us. I mean, obviously, we've got our own situation in Georgia but you're starting to see CBD products everywhere. You're starting to see oils everywhere. It's almost as if we're we're doing a process that's old in how we're dealing with this. I, I am surprised that we have sort of fallen behind in some respects, and the market is driving this. I miss State Representative Alan Peak of Macon, Georgia, who sort of was the gold champion for moving Georgia in the direction of allowing healing agents of certain cannabis project to be products to be used, particularly for children, um, and got that legislation passed and then was one of the people and one of the companies that bid on being able to market and sell medicinal marijuana and, and did not get that supporter vote that, that came from the state. It's, you know, when you look around us, it states on most every side, both the amount of revenue that those states are deriving from the sale of medicinal marijuana and the speed with which those markets were set up, we have to kind of wonder why it is taking so long. But I you know, I know that there are a number of complexities, including in the agricultural market, there's a concern still among the farmers about growing it because although it might be legal for certain purposes in Georgia, you still can't export the crop across state lines without violating federal law. Well, so it, it's, it's, I'm glad you mentioned federal law because this is something I worked on for the whole time I was with Senator Purdue, as well as I've I've been advocating for it 
uh, for a number of years. My husband's a primary care physician. His concern about marijuana, medical marijuana, he doesn't deny that there have been cases uh, that he has had patients that have shared with them, him, especially in cases of cancer and things like that, that they were using medical marijuana to help with pain and with um, appetite and that sort of thing. All that kind of thing. But the problem is it's still a class one drug as far as the uh, FDA is concerned, which means they can't do research on it. And as a physician, he says, I want to know how to prescribe it. If they're going to make this available, I need to know how you use it, right? And so what it needs to be is moved into that class two level so that you can do research on it. And a lot of, including my old boss, Senator Purdue, didn't want to do that. Uh, it needs to be moved into an area where they can do research on it so they know what is the right dose for X, Y, or Z. And strength of plant in yes. terms of THC content. I, I was surprised the amount of discussion that that got during the Obama administration with no action, and Joe Biden discussed it on the campaign trail um, two years ago, and his administration has initiated nothing. But it, it is another one of those situations where the patchwork of state regulations and the federal law that oversee it don't match up. And so that makes it difficult for practitioners like your husband and certainly for consumers who don't even understand you know, what they can seek without potentially violating, again, state or federal law to take care of a family member. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's one of those things that we're going to continue. I mean, I know there's a class action lawsuit and there's a bunch of other things going on with that. What are the big issues that you're watching under the Gold Dome right now? Whether or not we're going to have a discussion on the floor and potential vote on expansion of gambling, what we're going to do with this record budget in terms of divvying it up, there's still ongoing concern and, and discussion about whether we expand Medicaid or we go deeper in the vouchers and make another ask of the federal government there. And what the final numbers are for the, the, the governor was pretty clear in his budget proposal, but what he asked for may not be what he gets in terms of compensation adjustments for not only educators who are getting another salary bump beyond the 5000 promised by Governor Kemp in his first term, but all state employees who are probably overdue an adjustment for what that number is because under the old numbers, the state of Georgia's payroll is approaching about $150 million per day which is roughly the number that a month of gasoline taxes being collected brings in. So you, you burn through a pretty good amount of cash, and the educators and all the other state employees across the state, and even a minus, you know, minor adjustment in compensation has a you know, mega-billion-dollar impact on the budget. Absolutely, and uh, we're going to see that happen. Now, economically, obviously, we just had the laundry list that is the State of the Union address that happens. And, of course, you think about how that impacts your individual state. Uh, what are your thoughts, one, on the State of the Union, and then how will it impact Georgia, if at all? Uh, I'll say that President Biden has been consistent, at least in my eyes, and that none of his State of the Union addresses have left me, well, they've all left me sort of underwhelmed. I fell asleep. Um, I, I'll admit, yeah, I fell as, asleep. As I had to watch the rest As of our it. new House Speaker dozed off, the, it was too long. It was jumping all around. I, again, there were some admirable attempts to tackle some large issues like how we deal with youth crime and how we deal with crime before the fact. But he's trying to do too many things at the same time, pleasing his own party, the progressive base, to actually be clear in his objectives or how you would measure them. So I thought it was a pretty flat in terms of delivery, in terms of content. In terms of how it will impact Georgia, uh, there weren't, other than the potential drawdown in defense spending, if we end up in a 
significant partisan battle between the House leadership and the White House over expanding uh, the debt ceiling. The current fiscal budget, and we haven't had a real one other than the continuing resolutions, it's almost back to, I don't want to say George W. Bush's second term, um, 67% of the budget is entitlements, meaning primarily Social Security and Medicare, Medicaid, leaving you 33% for the rest of the budget, which includes the Department of Defense. So if 67% is entitlements, I don't see either party wanting to take on Social Security benefits or Medicaid on the downside. That means you've got to gut the other 33%, and the largest driver there is defense spending. So, you know, while he made more commitments to the Ukraine, I, you know, it sort of started to feel a little bit like Afghanistan. What's the how, – how do we define victory there? Is victory a Russian withdrawal, a ceasefire? And, and again, that lack of clarity makes it harder for the military leadership at the Pentagon to, to plan objectives. You know, I know this is, you know, way above our pay grade, but um, – you know, the Medicare and Social Security piece, they believe, Democrats believe it's a winner to say you're going to throw grandma off the cliff, okay? And they accuse Republicans of wanting to get rid of Social Security and Medicare, even though he said, you know, he tried to clarify his statements. But how are we going to get to the point where we can have a discussion, like we did in the 90s and in the 80s, about what really needs to happen with waste, fraud, and abuse in Medicare and Social Security? How are we going to change it so that it works better for people in the long run? My personal view is, you know, we've, Social Security is up to 67. I'm 66 in 10 months when I can start collecting Social Security. The person that's a year behind me is 67. I think Medicare probably ought to be uh, a stair step up like that. Also, I think that makes sense. I agree with you, and, and I, it's not popular to say it, and I wouldn't want to run for office on the platform, but I would take retirement age up to 70. Yep. Uh, healthy Americans live well into their 80s these days, and when increasingly affluent Americans are retiring in their mid-50s, that's a long span. And then the other thing we'll have to really talk about, and it won't be popular within the Republican Party, is means testing for benefits, meaning at a certain income level you don't get benefits because right. if you are – well-retired or have savings and did the smart things all your life and were successful in business, you have benefits and assets others don't. You may have paid into the system all your life, but the idea is not it's not a piggy bank, as Al Gore referred to it. It is a mass savings account to transfer and support those of us retired from those of us in the workforce. And when it used to be, the mix was 12 or 13 to 1 of active workers versus retirees, and it's getting closer and closer to 2 or 3 to 1 of active workers versus retirees. The, the cut's got to come somewhere. So you either reduce benefits to, collectively or you reduce the number of people who receive benefits by adjusting the age. The two worst years in American history was 1913 when the income tax was passed and 1966 when Lyndon Johnson mixed the Social Security and Medicare money with the general fund. Now, there was never, Al Gore was wrong, there was never a lockbox with your name on it. But they did at least keep the money separate until 1966. And what do, what happened in 1966? That was the first year baby boomers were turning 21. And so there was money just flying into these accounts. And I understand why people looking at it were going, hmm, there's a lot of money there. We can use that and we'll pay it back someday. 
but someday never came. And now we've got... Yeah, there's no money there. That's, yeah. that's an empty cupboard when they get around to opening it. It's pay-as-you-go now, baby. It's pay-as-you-go. Bill Crane, thanks so much for being with us today. Take care. Have a great week. It's local radio, and that's why you're listening. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. It is the Martha Zoller Show, and Shondell Summers here with me. Good morning. Good morning, Martha. And it is Super Bowl weekend. I guess it's been, now it's a whole week long of events that happen. I mean, it's just of relevance only if you live in one of the cities where the teams are from. That's right. Unless you're somebody like Chris Draft, who is our guest here today. Chris is a former Falcons football player. I think you played, did you play for the Rams, too? Am I right about that, Chris? How are you? I play for the Rams, too, in St. Louis. That's right. That's right. So yeah. you're at the Super Bowl, and have you been there all week? I've been here since Saturday, since last Saturday. Uh, so did spreading, you? Uh, lung cancer awareness, love, and, you know, all over the city. And you've been, did you go to the big NFL awards last night, or was that the night before last? I did, and I actually was with some vets last night. Uh, uh, there's a group called Warrior Wishes that I've come in contact with a number of times, so we actually spent the time with them. Uh, so, amazing time. Well, tell us, Chris, about uh, what you're doing for the Super Bowl, but really your life's work. Remind people about what that is. Well, thank you. Thank you, Martin. So, uh, you guys know, when I, I finished up playing in the NFL, uh, it, was, it was 2010, and my, my late wife, Keisha, was diagnosed with lung cancer in December of 2010. Uh, you know, she was 37 years old, in amazing shape, and uh, out of nowhere, had a little shortness of breath, went in and got checked, and uh, they found a mass in her left lung. Um, a couple of weeks later, you know, with a biopsy and a PET scan, we find out it's stage four lung cancer. And so you go from being in amazing shape, challenge me to run uh, uh, 10K and do P90X to all of a sudden, stage four lung cancer, where uh, you know, the prognosis is not good. Uh, so she passed a, a year later, December 27, 2011. Uh, but not before we, we got married and were able to um, make a commitment, make two commitments on it. Uh, one to each other and the other one, based on based on Keisha challenging me before. And, you know, asking, so what if, what if we don't get presents before our wedding? You know, what if we... What if we Ask people to support the foundations. Go, we can stand up and follow the lung cancer community, and so uh, that's that's what happened. You know, two commitments, one to each other, and one to the lung cancer community. And, and after she passed, I had to be honest about you know, is this something that I can continue? Is something I can can continue to fight for? And so, could I accept that nothing was going to bring her back to the advocacy? Nothing here in Phoenix is going to get that done. Uh, could I? Be excited for the people that are benefiting from the innovations. And there's a lot that have happened in the last 10 years. And am I willing to fight for it? So am I willing to not just go to a bunch of parties at the Super Bowl, but really use this as an opportunity of all the media in the world to be here to be able to bring a message of, of that lung cancer is changing, a message of, you know, you matter to all our survivors, a message of that you're not alone to all the people that are fighting for the survivors and the caregivers and medical community. So there's hope in that. that that there are things that have changed from early detection to treatment to research and survivorship, and, you know, it's here. 
Yeah, I mean, and you know, I, I, I sympathize and empathize with where you are. I lost my dad to lung cancer. He was diagnosed in May of one year and died in August. Um, and uh, my mom lived about two years with the diagnosis. And my sister was at the same time your wife was ill. She was diagnosed about the same time and died about the same time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it it is one of those things where I learned the hard truth that I think you learned, too, is that we hadn't made that yes. much progress in lung cancer treatment, but we have in the last 12 years a lot of progress. Absolutely. The Human Genome Project was crit- you know, critical in getting at Donna. And, you know, it's really understanding the real makeup of lung cancer now. So many of the treatments are targeting these specific mutations that, you know, make it where the drugs don't work for everyone, but the ones that they do work, you know, they work well. And so uh, there's there's so much more on the horizon. You know, that's why, again, research doesn't just matter, but the research is working. And so ideally by going around and spreading the word, uh, and letting people know we can get more investment and really accelerate the change. And the NFL's been very supportive of your work, haven't they? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, NFL has been amazing in that it's not that they're just supportive, but they really provide a great backdrop for what we should want or what we say we want as it relates to uh, our medical community. And so, you know, the NFL... You know, you, I heard earlier that you know the, the game is not as relevant, you know, because you know being in Atlanta versus Philadelphia or Kansas City. And I, I would say I, I feel you on that, except for the fact that to have a great game, uh, there are people all over the country that are watching. They're all over. They're they're coming together. They're seeing it. And the when the NFL wins, all the teams win. And so. When we look at, you know, what is this kind of, you know, how does the NFL create a great backdrop for the, for the Lunkheads community is that with our salary cap, with the parity, they want every team to believe that they can win. So as we're watching the game, say Falcons fans are watching the game, they know that with a couple of adjustments, this can be them next year, right? Because the game is set up that way. And so the same thing in terms of our medical community, are we fighting to make sure that there are, you know, top places in every community so people don't have to get on the planes. And they, they can believe that they can win the Super Bowl of treatment in every community. We're talking to Chris Draft. And um, if people want to know more about your work, what can they do? Well, they can definitely go to, to Chris Draft on Instagram, Britain, at Chris Draft on Twitter, and, and follow me that way. But look at the White Ribbon Project. The White, you know, White Ribbon Project is... It was founded by uh, Heidi and Pierre Onda. Uh, Heidi, a, a survivor, Pierre, a caregiver, that realized that that lack of awareness was not something that was just out there, uh, rather than the lack of awareness was something that we could control as a lung cancer community. And so Heidi asked her husband to make a big white ribbon so that she could shout it out that she wasn't ashamed of being a survivor. And in doing that, she challenged the other survivors to do the same. And in the process, created an international movement of love and urgency where we recognize that you can't just say that people just matter and, and just expect that to happen without fighting for it. 
And Absolutely. So and I, I have one. I have one in my office. Um, okay, I'm going to ask you an NFL question now, Chris, before I let you yes, go. Okay, so yes. I think the NFL had a little identity crisis about five years ago where they felt like they had to be either inclusive or patriotic, that they couldn't be both. And I think they've worked through that. And what I've seen now is they're inclusive about things, but they're also not afraid to do the patriotic stuff that makes the NFL great. So I, I would say the, the Salute to Service initiative has been around for a while now. I, I know I was you know, part of uh, the reason that we, that we even had it. Uh, but the idea of being inclusive, uh, the problem uh, is that sometimes people just go to the game without really appreciating the game. And why I love it is because if you, if you look around as you're at a game, you will see different races, different socioeconomic groups that literally on Sunday, uh, that's the most inclusive time in America. Amen. So the NFL <laughs> didn't really have a problem with it as much as that the people didn't realize what they were a part of, right? Dr. King had said that, that 10 o'clock on Sunday was the most segregated time in America. And I had a chance to share with his, his daughter, Dr. Denise King, that 1 o'clock on Sunday is the most integrated time in America. <laughs> You are absolutely right. Chris Draft, thank you so much for always being involved in this and keep fighting. Thank you.